Well, good morning, church. Uh, I just want to, uh, again, extend a heartfelt uh, welcome to anyone who's newer here at Christ Community. We're so grateful that you're here with us. And um, for those who may remember, um, our Crossfire Parent Youth Ministry just finished up recently. And uh, the last psalm that we uh, looked at was Psalm 88 on May 30th. And I was, I was thinking through what would best serve uh, Christ's community. I, I couldn't think of a better psalm. And so although um, I have made alterations since Crossfire, uh, I pray that Psalm 88 would address you parents and teens in a fresh way this morning. And it's always important to remember, right, that uh, the Word of God is, is living and active. Amen? And even though you can hear uh, Scripture again and again, there's always something new that the Lord is revealing um, by His Spirit. So if you would kindly open up to Psalm 88, if you haven't already, your phones or your Bibles, we're going to read God's Word together. Psalm 88. Starting at the header, this is God's word. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leona, a maskal of Haman the Ezraite. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shield. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your weight, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made a made me a horror to them. I am shut in, so I cannot escape. I was my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all the day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions had become darkness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with many burdens, but you are kind and faithful. You love your children. Holy Spirit, help us to glean truth from your word this morning and apply it. Help me as I preach to stay away from unintentional error, and please, God, by your grace, grant repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you may receive much glory from it all. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. During the fall of 2005, I was 13 years old, and I was a very active teenager, I played football during the fall, and I played baseball during the spring. And honestly, I was a very 
very happy and healthy teenager growing up with two parents and my older brother in Bethlehem. But my plans of living a more carefree existence changed just slightly that year. Over the course of a week, I was experiencing a consistent pattern of abdominal pains and urgency. I would run to the bathroom with stomach cramps thinking it must have been something that I ate. But I remember one evening seeing something that was very, very abnormal. I, I, saw, I saw blood. And with my parents in a composed panic, for my sake, we went to the emergency room desperate for answers. Test after test was performed for a number of weeks, much of them being very uncomfortable. And finally, in December of 2005, I came up with a diagnosis, which was ulcerative colitis. It's an inflammatory bowel disease that affected my lower intestines and particularly my colon. So there I was, 13 years old, sent home with a diagnosis and a prescription for seven pills that I had to take every day for the rest of my life. And while there has been some relief granted after nearly 14 years, the shadow of my disease remains. Depending on the season, I can often feel like it's a cloud just hovering. I don't know if you can relate to that. A life that is plagued with the effects of this fallen world as we talked about and on your loved ones. And in a moment of emotional distress, maybe you can relate to me when you say to God, Just reverse it. Can you please just reverse this? Can we just go back in time? But the question I would ask you, church, is what happens when things don't go back to normal? What happens when you can't see, as they say, the light at the end of the tunnel? And this is the state of mind that we find our psalmist in chapter 88. Haman, the Ezraite, is named the author who's from the sons of Korah in the Old Testament. And while we don't know the exact circumstances that surround and lead to this psalm, some commentators infer that it may be related to physical affliction, some type of illness, some type of disease. Either way, I just want to make a note of four key things before we get into, just for context, four facts about this psalmist. Number one, Haman was most likely a songwriter. He was responsible for the vocal and instrumental music of the temple service during the reign of David, as we see in 1 Chronicles 15, 16-22. Number two, during his service, he was able to see the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem. A wonderful moment in that time. And this is referred to in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 12. Number three, another note about Haman was the fact that he was considered to be wise. And not just, not just wise like any other man, he was even compared to the wisdom of Solomon, as we know is often referred to as the wisest man in all of scripture, referenced in 1 Kings 4, verse 31. And finally, the fourth fact that we can see about Haman in the scriptures is that his name means faithful. These facts give a strong reason to believe that he was a man of God. He, he loved God. He loved family. And yet here we have someone who's declaring that he feels abandoned and cut off from God. How does that work? How is that possible? Maybe you can relate. Well, in this fallen life church, as we've talked about, we will certainly have troubles. But here's the big truth. Here's the big truth that we need to grasp, church, this morning and for the rest of our lives. And I hope that we can meditate on this. That God is present even when you feel forsaken. God is present. He is at work even when you feel forsaken. And so as we look at this truth, we're going to look at three observations seen from verses 1 to 18. The first is mighty truth. The second is many troubles. And the third is more prayer. Again, let me repeat that if you're taking notes. Mighty truth. 
many troubles, more prayer. Let's start with the first point, mighty truth. The tone of this psalm is clearly one of lament. If you're just listening, just from that first reading, we see that it's sorrowful, it's sad. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, right, we must acknowledge Haman's first fact in verse 1a. This is what he says. O Lord, God of my salvation. It might seem like just a passing statement. What's the big deal? Why is this so important to remember this? Because in our deepest distress, we will be tempted toward unbelief in the promises of God. It's just going to happen. We're going to face that temptation. We may think God couldn't possibly love me if he would allow me to go through such a thing. And so as a result, we tend to trust in and rush to false saviors. Again, maybe you can relate to me. We run to entertainment, to food, to work, to family, shopping, positive thinking, run to our little hobbies. The reason why when we're tempted, we go to these false saviors is because they provide that immediate but temporary satisfaction. When we're in distress and we don't believe in God's promises, we tend to worship created things rather than the creator. But these are mere distractions from the only one and true savior, brothers and sisters. And throw, and though Haman is about to unload a ton of troubles on us. We see this for the rest of this chapter. He addresses the matter of first importance. The matter of first importance that God saves his very soul. And if you're a Christian this morning, here's a question. And church, I think this is just really important for all of us. Have you resolved to regularly remember and mull over the gospel right now now do you do i preach the promises of god to myself to proactively prepare for heart-wrenching pain husbands and wives do you remind each other of god's precious promises regularly teens do you remind your siblings and your parents of god's timeless truth Church, do you remind your brothers and sisters of who God is regularly? A text here or there, an email, just a passing statement. Look, church, the the way to prepare for a house fire is not when the flames are consuming your kitchen. The way to prepare for a house fire is careful preparation prior to your kitchen being engulfed. Knowing your numbers, knowing where the extinguishers are, knowing where the routes are out of your house. So that when the day of calamity comes, you can confidently take the shield of faith and speak life into your sorrow. And you can say like Haman said, oh Lord, God of my salvation. Though you're in turmoil, each of us can remember, as Philippians 4, 7 reminds us, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is what we need to focus on. Remembering regularly the precious promises of God so that in the day of battle, we are not thrown off kilter as if we're ignorant to the schemes of the devil because evil takes no days off. Devil takes no days off. We ought to not take any days off thinking that we're going to get a break in this fallen world. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, we're so glad that you're here to join us. But I want to be sensitive, but also faithful to proclaim truth. That no suffering in this life will compare to the wrath of God. You may have experienced physical, genuine physical, emotional, mental breakdowns. And as a church, honestly, we, we welcome, we want to pray for you. Come to, to, come to us, come to the pastors. We want to pray for you and come alongside of you. But in eternal spiritual death, Apart from God in hell is no comparison to what you experienced here in this life. People say hell on earth. It's just not accurate. It's a great sentiment. Don't get me wrong. It's just not accurate. So let's address the matter of first importance. Have you repented and put your faith in Jesus? I can't promise that Jesus is going to provide you everything you need right now in your life. But what I can promise you is spiritual life now and complete life and relief 
in the life to come. God will be with you even when you feel forsaken, friend. Let's move on to the second point, many troubles. For the next 10 verses or so, Haman cries out to the Lord with many sorrows. In verse 1b, he figuratively demonstrates the high frequency of his prayers. He says, I cry out day and night before you. Just this over and over and over and over again. Praying without ceasing, as the scriptures say. And then in verse 2, that frequency leads him to plead with the Lord to listen. To listen. In the first part of verse 2, if you're looking in your Bibles, it's as if he's asking the Lord to grant permission that he might lay out his prayer before him. And then he asks for his attention in desperation. The word incline, as you can see in your scripture, it literally means to bend down. To incline, right? It acknowledges, again, another great truth that God is high and he's below Haman and asking, please just, just bend your ear so that I might have it. And if you've ever been around small children, uh, and you probably can relate to this, right? When, when a child is maybe at your hip and they're tugging or just like, giving you that hand gesture to come down, or maybe they're actually yelling, right? They're screaming below, and you wouldn't notice until they get your attention. <sighs> I like to believe this is a great visual demonstration of what Iman is feeling and experience. He wants the ear of God. He doesn't want the hip pocket of God. He wants the ear of God so that he might bring his cry before him. And in verses 3 to 6, Iman begins by saying that his soul is full of troubles. You can see in verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles. And notice that his possible physical affliction leads him to a sense of spiritual chaos, right? He says his soul is full of troubles. He didn't say his body is full of troubles. He says his soul is full of troubles. And so he feels abandoned. He almost feels as if he's left to die. And so we see this strong figurative language, remembering that this is the Psalms, and therefore we have poetic language used versus three to six. In verse three, he says that my life draws near to Sheol, just referring to a place of the dead. In verse four, he says, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. He says he's a man with no strength. Verse five, he says, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more. Verse six, You have put me in the depths of the pit. Again, repeating that same phrase. And the regions dark and deep. This theme of death, this theme of abandonment, you can hear it in his words. You can hear it's very clear. The despair that floods each of these lines. And this man feels like he's at the end. No strength, no respite, no rest. Can you relate to him? Even if it's just a small moment. Maybe this is not something that you feel like this happens every day, but maybe in just a small moment of time that you felt this type of desperation. Man, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just as good as dead right now. There have been things taken from me. I might as well just be dead. He continues his cry in verses 7 to 9. I'll just read that again. Number, uh, verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. In verse 7, Haman points to the wrath of God feeling heavy upon him. And he likens it to being almost hit. If you've ever been to the ocean before, right? Where you just get smacked with a wave. And then then before you can get up, the next wave hits you. You get that gulp of salt water and you can't even get up. If you can relate to that, I hate that feeling. I mean, just like you literally feel helpless. Just tumbling in waves. And that's how he's expressing it here. He likes into being hit with wave after a wave, gasping for air. And it's important to note here, church, that in the Old Testament, we see glimpses of God's wrath. We've seen that already through our seeing Christ in all of Scripture. And God's wrath is a divine response that results from human sin and disobedience. 
And this is because God is holy and just and he must punish sin. And within the context of the psalm, we don't really know if Haman sins. There's no omission of guilt. There's no confession that we often see within psalms. We don't know if he sinned or we can't determine that. And whether he's experiencing a a divine response as affliction or whether he's simply, simply equating his suffering as if God is against him with his very wrath. We don't know that from this psalm. But what we do know is that for those who trust in God for salvation, like this man, everything is done by the Lord because he loves us, not with the intention of destroying us. He is doing something through the pain. Nothing is a waste. There are no wasted ingredients in God's recipe that he is putting together sovereignly for your life. There's no wasted effort by God. Psalm 119.71 reminds us about even how affliction done by God in his sovereignty is meant for our good. This is what it says in Psalm 119.71. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The Lord is sovereignly orchestrating, whether we like it or not. God is sovereignly orchestrating events in your life for your benefit, believer. It may not feel good now, but we know that in the end, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. In verse 8, we see that even this man's friends have turned aside. And again, this could be a result of the physical ailment that he was dealing with at the time, something that could have been potentially um, contagious, something visibly appalling to look upon. And that's why it even says that you have made me a horror to them. And in his misery, he feels like there are these walls just closing in, feeling almost spiritually claustrophobic coming alongside of him with nowhere to escape. And yet, here we see a man who's persistent in verse 9. This is what he says in verse 9. Although everything is taking place, he says, after he says his eye grows dim through sorrow, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. This is important, church. This is important. You have to see the desperation in this man, the urgency. This is not a man who just passively is being overtaken, but actively persevering in coming before the Lord. Church, does this characterize us? Does it characterize you? Does it characterize us even when things are going well? When the bills are paid, the house is in order, the kids are obedient, the marriage is sweet, do we say to ourselves, oh Lord, I still need you every hour, I still need you. When everything around me, my circumstances are in place, do I say, I need you even more? Help me not be led into pride, thinking that this was done by my own hand. May the Holy Spirit lead us that type of desperation. Amen, church. That even when things are going well and you hear the sermon and you say to yourself, you know, Josh, I think things are going pretty well. Do we equate that to then saying, wow, okay, the devil takes no days off. The world takes no days off. My flesh takes no days off. Am I still desperate for the Lord knowing that any time I can just stumble, that I am weak and, and he is strong. And that he doesn't slumber, though I slumber. Do we have that type of desperation like Haman does? Verses 10 through 12, this section, we see that theme of death repeat. It it, it resurfaces as we saw in verses 3 to 6. But this time with a series of questions. In some ways, they're kind of rhetorical. So let me read 10 to 12. It says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? 
Now, it's important to note, church, that even in the midst of his questions, he recounts the very attributes of God. Do you see that in there? What man who truly does not believe in the Lord would say steadfast love, wonders, righteousness? No, a man who's opposed to God curses God. He's an enemy of God. No, this is not an enemy of God. We clearly see this. The context proves that ultimately he is declaring these things of God to be true. The purpose of these questions is not to suggest that God can't help him. Nor is it suggesting that the ultimate resurrection from the dead is invalid, right? He says, like, you know, can these things even be true when I'm dead? He is simply pleading with the Lord for relief in this life. His eyes are so fixed on what's happening right in front of him. He just wants relief right now, not thinking about what the life is to come. He already feels like he's dead, even in this life. And that, in the end... That in the end, a dead and lifeless physical body cannot offer anything to God. Nor can it receive anything from God. A dead, lifeless body cannot do those type of things. And so he pleads for his very life right now to feel relief so that he might offer himself as sacrifice and worship and also receive from God. He just wants relief right now. So that he might continue to do what his heart already is declaring here. His steadfast love, his wonders, his righteousness. This is a man who loves God, but he wants relief. God is present even when we feel forsaken. May we allow the facts of scripture to drive our feelings, to be the catalyst for our feelings and not the other way around. May we resolve to be someone like Job, who, though all is against him, though all is taken away, he says, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Do we have that type of resolve, church? Are we resolved in our hearts right now, before it happens? You know, one of the temptations and one of the common questions and objections to Christianity is, why would God allow so much evil? And what we know, that in the end, all of us, because of sin, deserve to experience the worst kind of evil, the worst, the worst punishment against us. We deserve God's holy and just wrath, and yet in his kindness, he sent Christ, so that we wouldn't have to experience that. It's the wrong question. The better question is, why would he send Jesus? Why would he allow us to live? Why would he not just condemn us? We must prepare for the storm before it hits so that we may not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave, but hold fast to the word of God. Number three, point number three, more prayer. For the majority of the remaining verses that close this psalm, the psalmist continues his lament. It's really nothing new, right? And if you've been around someone who's grieving, it's often just that same overwhelming feeling. It's to the point where sometimes there's not even words to express, right? If you've ever been someone who's in grief, sometimes there's just not even words to express how the soul-wrenching pain is coming out. And much of these are repeated. And yet in verse 13, again, we see another example of this psalmist's persistence. This is what it says. Despite the many troubles and questions that follow, he says in verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Church, when we do not receive the answers to life's biggest questions, will we cry before the Lord or will we run away from him? When our souls feel the lowest of the low, will our prayers come before the Lord in the morning? 
allow life in this fallen world to push us to our knees at the foot of the cross. God is strong enough to take your rawest emotions until your last breath. Cry out before the Lord. Honestly. This psalm, like much of Scripture, reminds us that emotions are a part of who we are, that we're created beings with emotions. But we must, in our emotions, avoid two pitfalls, both internally and externally. So two, two pitfalls. As we come before the Lord in prayer and we interact with others, two pitfalls, internally and externally. The, number, the first pitfall is minimizing our pain and distress minimizing our pain and distress. Internally, we can say things like, and again, if you've been around Christian circles long enough, been in church long enough, we can say things like, everything's fine. Carefree. I got nothing to worry about. We cover it with often platitudes. But there's a difference, church. There's a difference between being genuinely joyful in the midst of suffering and wearing a mask of superficial happiness. There's a difference between I am so desperate for God. I'm going to find joy in him even though my heart feels like it's literally been pulled out of my chest. There's a difference between that and just glazing over with a face of I'm not weak at all. I'm never weak. I'm strong. Let us avoid those false impressions of wellness, and confess our weakness. Let us agree with Psalm 73, 26, which says, my flesh and my heart may fail. It's okay. In a world that says you are strong, in a world that says that you are powerful, in a world that says that nobody can ever break you down, let us just say, no, I'm not. I'm weak. I need help. And externally, likewise, let us enter into the pain of our brothers and sisters. Let us not become callous, stoic, and cold with truth and avoid compassion. And we simply just gloss over people's pain and say, well, if you trusted God more, you wouldn't feel that way. How insensitive. Let us cry and grieve with our brothers and sisters over time. Let us love and know our friends in their deepest moments of sorrow and not just throw a bumper sticker on something and say, here you go. I gave you my scripture. I gave you God's word. Do something with it. No, it's okay to mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. And that's why it's so important, church, that we are plugged into God's word. Because we also must avoid the second pitfall. The first pitfall was minimizing our pain and stress as if it's not there, as if it's just some made-up figment of our imagination. But the second means we also need to not overly magnify our pain and distress. And this can be very difficult. Internally, again, internally and externally, we can lead ourselves or allow ourselves to become caught in the fact that it's all we can think about. It's all we can fix fixate on. It's all we can talk about. That we're so fixated on our emotional distress to the point where it's debilitating, that we're ineffective, that we literally cannot get up, we cannot eat, we cannot do anything, and that might happen for a season in time. Let's not be, again, let's not move past that first point to say like, wow, there are people who would actually feel that, that they don't even want to get up in the morning. Maybe you find yourselves inadvertently thinking through emotions just over and over again. That's and over God's promises. It's possible that people will feel that way. It's possible that we will put ourselves, we, or not put ourselves, but find ourselves in that position, church, that we see that our emotions and our circumstances are just bigger giants than God. And so when people ask us how we're doing, we just unload. We just unload. 
right? But we also need to remember that God does not want to keep us there. God does not want us to just stay there to the point where our emotions cause us to disbelieve God's promises. Emotions are good. When we put them on the pedestal where God belongs, we start worshiping our feelings over the God who gave us those feelings. So we must also agree. We agree with my flesh and my heart may fail in Psalm 73, 26, but we also agree with Psalm 73, 26, the second half, which says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's a both and church. It's a both and living in that tension of being honest with our emotions, but not letting them consume us to the point where we idolize them. And this can be very, very gray at times. But God is with us even when we feel forsaken, even when we don't know what to do with our emotions, when we don't know how to express what is going on in our hearts. God is there. His Holy Spirit is ministering comfort to us as believers. He's not leaving you in the dark, saying, figure it out on your own. You just trusted me more, then you'd be better. No. God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. That's internally. Externally, we must be quick to listen to others, church. When we're, when, we're, when, when we're met with someone who's in grief, we must listen. We must get to know and love our neighbors, to know, love and know those around us. But God also calls us to speak truth and love, to care for people's greatest need, which is their soul. We also must spur each other on to good deeds and the service of God. I remember I had a friend in college when I would come to him with a lot of grief and I was dealing with a lot of indwelling sin. And I would just talk about how I was feeling over and over and over again. It would be like 30 minutes in the conversation and he just, he would at the very end after listening very kindly would say, Josh, thank you for telling me about how you feel. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you know now. Now that you expressed everything about what you're going through, tell me about your God. He could have just left me there and just said, great, hey, can I pray for you? And that would have been wonderful too. But guess what? He decided to point me to my Savior of my soul. He decided to put me to the greatest assurance that I have, not my emotions, because those are going to go up and down for the rest of my life, but my God, who is assurance steady anchor. That's what he did for me. I needed that. He did it kindly in such a way that was winsome and just and, and very... Loving, not insensitive, not a no uh, thanks, but no thanks, uh, just a genuine, God, uh, Josh, just tell me about your God. Tell me about God, who God is. Tell me what he's done for you. May God grant us the wisdom as to when we ought to say those things. And when we ought to not say that, right? There's going to be some times where we don't have to say that. May God grant us the wisdom to know when is the time and place to say those things. It, there's no manual for it. <laughs> there's no, here's, again, counseling friends 101. We just want to find counsel from God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in truth. Now, the best human example who showed persistence and avoided both pitfalls. It's no spoiler alert. It was Jesus. During his greatest hour of need, He came before the Father again and again and again. After each time, do you know what happened with his friends? Found his friends sleeping. Almost like they abandoned him. Like how Haman's expressing it here. He demonstrated his human emotional nature. So deeply to the point where he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You want to talk about someone who didn't minimize his emotions. Oh, it was coming out. And it was coming out in the form of even physical results. Jesus was not minimizing his pain. But you know what else he didn't do? He didn't allow his emotions in that body that he took on flesh to stop the rescue mission for which he came. His eyes were fixed on the will of the Father. And we read... In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 42, this is what he says. This is just a beautiful encapsulation of that balance, that, that, that tension. 
He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup, referring to the cup of wrath, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. My physical pain of ulcerative colitis may be great, but Jesus' pain was even greater. Haman may have experienced what felt like wrath, but nothing compared to the full, unhindered cup of wrath that was poured on Jesus. Nothing would compare. So that ultimately, this psalmist's sins could be forgiven. So my sins could be forgiven. And that is the reason we can know that God is present even when we feel forsaken. We look to the cross. If you ever are tempted to feel apathetic about God and just think the God of the Bible is just so abandoning me, just look at the cross. He gave us his own son. He did not withhold his own son for you, believer. And then he sent his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment, a seal. I'm coming back for you. I'm coming back for you. Let's look at verses 14 to 18 to close and remember the good news of the gospel. Verse 14. Do you feel like God's face has turned away? This is the fact. God's face turned away from Jesus so his face could shine upon us. Verse 15. Do you feel like you're close to death and helpless? This is the fact. Jesus tasted the sting of death so we wouldn't have to, and offers his Holy Spirit as the helper and a seal. Verses 16 and 17. Do you feel like God's punishing wrath is aimed at you? That he opposes you? This is the fact. Jesus fully satisfied the wrath, a propitiation for sin, so you and I would not have to. And finally, verse 18. Do you feel abandoned? Even your closest friends. Do you feel alone? This is the fact. Jesus was a man of sorrows who was rejected by men so God could declare us friends. He is working all things together for your good believer. Your most heart-wrenching pain that you will ever experience on this earth, he is working things for your good. And I would just implore those who are not Christians. Often we can be tempted to say, let's offer joy and peace and happiness to unbelievers. No, 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 no. The greatest thing that I can offer you is the gospel, which has soul saving power. The joy and peace that comes as a result, that's, that's, just the, that's just the side effects. Those are just the after effects of understanding that your soul first is secure. Soul security, that's what you're looking for. That's why when we offer Jesus and proclaim him crucified, that's what you're looking for. We can find happiness and joy and a lot of other things in this life. They will be temporal. But when you know that your soul is secure because of Jesus who died for you so that you wouldn't have to go to hell, that brings eternal satisfaction both now and in the life to come. Will we believe that? Will we resolve to remember the good news of the gospel right now so that when I ever go through a situation that I'm not taken surprise, that I can sing Romans 8.28, I can sing this and mean it. It's not just a biblical platitude meant to just glaze over you It's meant to matriculate down into your soul. It's not just meant to just gloss over and say, I know that already. No, it's meant to be put into work and action and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is what Romans 8.28 says, church. It's well known. but We need to functionally work that out by God's help. This is says, and we know. Man, don't you love that? We don't think, we don't feel, we know. We know that for those who love God, all things, love how Tom says that, all means all, all means all, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Facing death, 
in your life, in our church, all things work together for good. Nothing is wasted. No time is catching God off guard, off balance. No, everything is working together for your good church. He loves you. He cares about you. Bring your cries before him. And even when you feel forsaken, know that God is present. He's active. He's always on watch because he loves his children who he's adopted. Let's pray. Oh Lord, God of our salvation, let our prayers come before you and incline your ears to our cries. Our souls are also full of troubles. But in our troubles, God, help us to remember the facts of the gospel, that you are with us. Help us to build our house on the rock of your word so we can stand when floods and wind come. Help us to regularly have urgency and desperation to come before you both in the highs and the lows. Help us to humble ourselves to receive comfort from others and give us wisdom to offer comfort to others as well. But also, give us courage to seek truth and to speak truth. We thank you that you do hear us because there is one mediator between you and us and his name is Jesus Christ whose life and death and resurrection gives us hope this morning. We are not without hope. Holy Spirit, comfort us. Bring to remembrance these truths in our life until we are safely home with Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We can we thank God for Joshua preaching Psalm eighty eight to us. <clears throat> thank you, Joshua. Church, one of the things that I am so affected by with Psalm 88 is it's very unique in, in, in the depths that it takes us to in, in helping us to see not just the highest of highs in life, but also the lowest of lows in life when even a, a godly man like Haman would, would suffer depths like his heart cry in Psalm 88. And we have a God who we can cry out to in all times and in all seasons. I want to encourage you, just an application to this psalm to remember that, as Joshua mentioned, it just through, throughout the sermon, God is present in your life even when you feel forsaken. And uh, the Christian life has got so many joys, and Christ has come to give us life and life to the full. And But that does not mean that our lives are not touched by this fallen world and by suffering. We will encounter suffering and difficulty and sometimes like Haman talked about wave upon wave. And I want to encourage you that you have a God who is with you in the wave upon wave sufferings that we go through in the Christian life. Um, I love the way Joshua highlighted in the midst of this is that as low as the pain went and as dark as it went for Haman here in Psalm 88, Jesus' pain was much greater. What Christ has gone through and the way that he can sympathize with us in all of our afflictions, the way that Christ was tempted in every way as each and every one of us are and yet was without sin. Never once did he fail to trust his Father. Never once, even when he was forsaken for our sins, Christ cried out in faith, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question was, He forsook Jesus, the Father did, for our sins. And because Jesus went to the lowest of lows in the human experience, actually experiencing being forsaken by His Father, 
we in this room who by God's grace have repented of our sins and believed in Christ, we have the promise over our life. I will never leave you or forsake you. Church, what a wonderful God that we have who is with us, not just in the highs of life and the happy times, but who we can come to and cry out to, who understands, who sympathizes, who knows affliction and loves us and is with us for all times and seasons. Isn't he awesome indeed? God, you are so good to us, and we're so thankful that we have you with us in all times and all seasons. Thank you so much, Lord, that you are a God who is present with us even when we feel forsaken. We know we are never forsaken because you forsook your only Son so that the sin which once separated us from you could be atoned for so that we can be reconciled to you and be your sons and daughters who will never be forsaken. God, thank you so much that we can cry out to you in the joys of our life. We can cry out to you in the hardest of times. You are a God for all times and all seasons, and we love you and we worship you and praise you for being who you are. And thank you, as Joshua reminded us, that you indeed work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Thank you that we have that assurance that even in the darkest of times in our lives as believers, we know that you are working all these things together for good. Minister that truth into our hearts and our feelings today and help us, as Joshua reminded us, not simply to talk about with one another how do, what, how do I feel, but also to declare to one another what we know to be true, the truth of your scriptures. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. What an awesome God we serve, church. Isn't he awesome indeed? And church, enjoy the rest of this beautiful, beautiful day. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And uh, greet Joshua on your way out as you're heading out. Thank you.